you have to take attention, the role of attention seriously if you think about backpropagation in the brain. Is there an explanatory account to go from that to our phenomenal awareness? And that's a hard question. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> and I'm not sure I'm going to convince everybody in, in this field with my because it's it's a it's it's a very difficult field with very different theories. I really thought I had to quit science, you know, because you I really s- did I papers. Yeah, I I thought this is a disaster. This is Brain Inspired. Hello, this is Paul Middlebrooks, and you just heard the voice of Peter Rolfsima, who runs the Vision and Cognition Group at the Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience. I invited Peter on the podcast uh, initially because of his work figuring out how the brain solves the credit assignment problem, which is the problem of how a given synapse or connection between neurons knows how to update its strength or weight so as to learn and improve the uh, behavior of the organism. This is not a trivial problem because adjusting the weight of a synapse affects the activity of all of the neurons connected after that, downstream, all the way until the end of the chain and some uh, behavior happens. Deep Learning's successful solution to this is backpropagation, which uses simple calculus to propagate an error signal backwards uh, through a neural network to update all the weights. And the success of deep learning has sent uh, neuroscientists into a frenzied search for something comparable in brains. The problem is, brains can't do backpropagation the way it's done in neural networks. So there have been many different uh, proposed solutions to how brains could solve the credit assignment problem. And Peter has his own solution, which to me is um, super appealing because it uses what we know about uh, how brains are structured and how they operate. So we discuss his proposal for uh, how brains solve the credit assignment problem. But uh, learning more about Peter's work, I decided also to ask him uh, about two other topics, one being consciousness and his experiments uh, testing the well-known global neuronal workspace hypothesis for how consciousness occurs. And then the other major topic, he is developing methods to cure blindness by implanting electrodes into early visual cortex that can then stimulate the brain in a precise and coordinated manner uh, to cause a person to experience patterns of phosphenes or flashes of light that will allow a blind person to interact visually with the world. Okay, so three main topics today, all of which would be worthy of entire episodes. And you can find the related information in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 81. If you value this podcast and you want to support it and hear the full versions of all the episodes and occasional separate bonus episodes, you can do that for next to nothing through Patreon. Go to braininspired.co and click the red Patreon button there. Guys, uh, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Uh, This little show is continuing to grow and that's because of your support and your feedback, which you can give through email uh, to paul at braininspired.co. It is abundantly clear to me that I can't please everyone, (laughs) but I do want to make the best show possible. Uh, So thank you for your help in improving the show. All right. Enjoy, Peter. Given your interests 
And given what you've worked on, I, I want to ask what brought you into neuroscience. I have a guess, and I, I want to see if my guess is correct. So actually, I studied medicine. And at some point, uh, I realized that I was really attracted to do fundamental science. And my father gave me a book, Gödel Escherbach. Oh, man. By Doug Hofstetter. Here it comes again. This book keeps coming up. It hasn't come up in a while, but it does keep coming up. Yeah, and so I read it, <clears throat> and then I thought, okay, I want to know how consciousness works. <laughs> yeah, that was my guess, is consciousness, yeah. I, what, what percentage of people do you think enter into neuroscience research because of that desire to know what consciousness is? Uh, I, I have no clue. I, it's got to be high. I have actually no clue. I think a lot of people pretend that, that they don't. That's my current theory anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a big attraction, uh, of course, to, to, I mean, there are, somebody told me there are like three big questions, so very large, so what is the origin of the universe? Very small, kind of what, what is matter, How what is matter built from? Right. And exactly in the middle, what is consciousness? Right. Yeah, we're all right in the middle here. Yeah, so good. It always makes me feel better when someone actually admits it. <laughs> so, but but you work directly on it, and so we'll we'll talk about consciousness here in a little bit. So your background, um, you you mainly I would I would say focused on what you call perceptual organization, uh, and you've developed this incremental grouping theory, uh, where it accounts for how we can look at some sort of crowded scene and know that we're looking at a single object even when it's occluded by other objects. You give a, a zebra, a bunch of zebras uh, is the example that you often give where some zebras are in front of others, but you still look at the scene and you immediately, what seems to be immediately, see, oh, there's a single zebra, even though you have things, you bind it all together as if it's one object. So you used to think that it was oscillations that would bind different what you call labels for an object together, but you found out that in fact it has to do with firing rates. Could you maybe maybe you could yes. just briefly describe that um, that summary of the work because it kind of leads into some of the other things that we'll speak about. Yes, so I was uh, I did my PhD in the lab of Wolf Singer in Frankfurt, and we were all excited about this idea that oscillations and in particular the synchronization of neurons at the at the fine time scale of 40 hertz was responsible for the binding so the idea was that that neurons that kind of line their spikes up really fire synchronously that they would do so to code for the fact that they are responsible for representing features of the same object and those neurons that code for features of different objects, they would kind of fire in asynchronously. That was the idea. And uh, I wrote papers about it. Um, and then I started my first postdoc in Amsterdam. And I wanted to test this and demonstrate for once and for all that Synchrony was doing the binding. <laughs> and so I trained monkeys on a task in which they would have to report what they bind. And for that, I had a, a task in which the monkeys would have to mentally trace a curve. So the cr curve was visible on the screen. Mm -hmm. but the animal would have to mentally trace it. He was looking here, and he was just kind of thinking along the curve, seeing what is on the other end. And then I would have two receptive fields on that, on that very same curve, mm -hmm. and they should synchronize. And then I had another version of the same stimulus, but then it would go through the first receptive field, but bend off 
so they would avoid the second receptor field. The second receptor field would be on another object. And then these the receptor fields should not synchronize. Okay, and very disappointingly, <laughs> I found out that this was not the case. Neurons kind of responded, but the synchrony was completely independent of the level of binding. So actually, I thought it's the end of my career. And there was this annoying effect on firing rates. Because if you analyze synchrony, you'd rather have the firing rates constant. But uh, actually, I found out that the firing rates actually were always a bit higher for the object that the animal was kind of mentally tracing. And uh, after one or two, well, one week or so, I started to realize actually the signal is not in the synchrony. The signal is in the firing rate. So all those neurons that represent features of one object, in this case, the curve that the animal is interested in, they enhance their firing rate. And that was then the start of this, uh, this incremental grouping idea. It's, it's closely linked to what psychologists call object-based attention. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that all those features that belong to a single object, that they are labeled in the brain by enhanced firing rates, and psychologists basically call it op this object-based attention. Now. The idea about object-based attention actually was that this is something that happens in parallel, but we found out actually that that can take quite substantial time before you realize all these image elements that belong to a single object. For most objects that kind of that you recognize, like like this cup, it happens fast. Actually, it ha doesn't happen instantaneously. You can measure that in, in subject's reaction time. So if you ask the subject two points, this point and this point, are they on the same object? They will tell you. And if, if these points are a bit farther apart, they will also tell you, but they'll take them a tiny bit longer. Mm. But then you have these crazy ob like, like objects like curves that are contorted, in which it can take you up to 10 seconds before you realize what, what is on the same object and what is on a different object. I mean, you give the example of a, an electric cord on a toaster or something that's coiled and wrapped around things, and, and it takes a while exactly. to trace out the, the cord. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a crazy story how I think incremental grouping theory is, I don't, I don't know if it's counterintuitive, but the idea, I'll, I'll say the idea and then you can correct me, is that, so there's this feed forward initial sweep in the visual cortex that goes from V1 up to IT, and then there's feedback recurrent processing, and, and we've talked on the show multiple times about this feedback activity and uh, how it uh, helps process over time, process objects. And uh, that's part of your story. But another part of your story is, so as you sweep forward in the visual stream, you start off in V1 with very small receptive fields. Uh, you know, and there's tons of them. And then, you know, all together, they cover the entire uh, visual field. But then as you progress in the feed forward sweep, as you go up the visual hierarchy, the receptive fields get larger and larger and larger. And the idea of incremental grouping theory is that your brain uses the available receptive field sizes, whatever's available, to fill that space and then piece all of them together. So you, at every level, uh, you're trying to piece together an object, but then to piece together the entire object, you're actually putting together different receptive fields from different layers in the hierarchy. I, I know that I just really bastardized that, but... How close is my description? That's exactly right. So, and in some cases, uh, like this cup, you probably have in your in your higher areas, say area IT, you have neurons that recognize this cup. 
and they know it's it's one object. So then this this kind of tying in recept different receptive field sizes in IT where you kind of code just for the overall shape, saying that this is a cup and not not a telephone or whatever. Uh, so that that can go actually relatively fast. That's that's image categorization. If 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 there's another object in the scene, say this this pen, right? Now there there are some contours that belong to the pen, some other contours that belong to the cup, and also here are contours that belong to the cup. If I now want to grasp it, I better make sure that I recognize objects of the cup as one, and I don't include kind of contours of the pen. Because in that case, I would make a mistake during my grasping process. So if you grasp something, it's not only about the shape, overall shape. It's also about what belongs to that cup and what not. And in the case of a pen and a cup, that's relatively simple. But there are cases, imagine that you're looking into a box with several elongated objects. There you sometimes really have to work it out. And then you get, inc then you get really tangible incremental grouping with, with, with long delays. So in many cases, we measure those delays in psychophysics, you know, mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the example that I just give. So there are two dots on this cup. How long does it take you to realize that they're on the same cup? It goes fast. But there are cases, say, some, even some natural scenes where it can take several hundred milliseconds before you work it out what belongs to what. And that's incremental grouping. So usually, incremental group, grouping goes fast. Maybe it's, it's, it's worked out in 150 milliseconds. In some cases, it's much slower. It takes up to a second or even several seconds. Um, and these are not the typical cases. And I actually think that we make eye movements about three times a second. Mm -hmm. So the typical time that you spend on, on the snapshots of what you see is 300 milliseconds. That's way too long for just feed forward processing. So that's right. feed forward processing plus a little bit of this incremental grouping process, this recurrent processing before you work out where it's strategic to make your next time movement, and then you repeat this process over and over again. And part of the story also is learning. As you're looking at an object and processing it and realizing it's a single object, there's learning going on while it's being processed. Could you explain, so, so why do you need learning? So I'm, I'm really interested in how the brain wires itself up. Right, so how do you produce all the connections between, say, the visual cortex and the motor cortex that makes you do this, the, the things that will ultimately give you reward and avoid the things that will ultimately give you punishments? Now, there are theories that try to explain how the brain wires itself up that only take into account, basically, the outcome of the trial in terms of whether it's reward or punishment. And uh, and then there is kind of a global signal, and there are like the dopamine neurons in in the uh, in the ventral tegmental area, and and they're part of substantia nigra that seem to code for this what is called reward prediction error. If you mm -hmm. get more reward than you expected, these neurons fire, right? And that would be a learning signal that is kind of throughout the brain, telling all the synapses, "Hey, this was better than expected. Better do it again in the future." Yeah. And and the other way around too. If if it's kind of disappointing or you get a punishment, there might be other neuromodulatory systems. Although we don't understand those as well yet, that kind of tell to other synapses, hey, better avoid that in the future. It turns out if you make a learning rule, sort of a heavy learning rule, where plasticity depends on the pre and the postsynaptic side plus this neuromodulator, learning is is not so good. It's just it seems to miss information. 
And what we found and, and uh, also worked on in models is that if, if there is a, a kind of a wave of activity from the visual cortex to the motor cortex, in the motor cortex is competition between the different actions, say motor program A and B. If you then choose motor program A, if you then use feedback from the motor program A to all the neurons in the lower levels that gave rise to the choice of motor program A, so this is the feedback wave, and you use the feedback wave to label all the synapses that are going to be held responsible for the outcome of motor program A. So they are basically tagged, these synapses are tagged, they're going to be held responsible. Now, you're going to take motor program, you're going to do action A, motor program A, you're going to execute it. Suppose it's good, better than expected. Then all the synapses that were previously tagged in the feedback sweep, they are going to increase in strength. If it was worse than expected, they're going to decrease in strength. It turns out that now we have four factors in our learning rule. We have the pre and the post. We have the global neuromodulator telling all the synapses in the brain it's, it was good or bad, plus the feedback wave that tells all the synapses they are responsible for the action, that you get something that is equivalent to airbag propagation. It basically has almost the same convergence properties as backpropagation. So actually, in, in, in recent work, we have used this biologically plausible version of backpropagation to train networks uh, on, on tasks that are benchmarks in, uh, that are used by people who are in deep learning. And it turns out that you get basically the same learning rule, only it's, it's a bit slower um, because we don't have a teacher. Right. If you're outside the reinforcement learning context and you do just standard backpropagation, you give a picture, say, of a horse or a zebra to a network, and then you tell the network in the output layer where there are 1,000 neurons, one of them for the zebra, one for the horse, one for a dog, and so on and so forth. And you present the zebra, and you say, oh, this should have been zebra, but this is reinforcement learning. So the network has to discover that for the picture of a zebra, it should try many many different actions before it stumbles onto the zebra. Now, given these expected uh, slowdown, it's, it's surprising that it's only a factor of two to three slower than standard error backpropagation. So that's the price you pay for getting rid of the teacher. But other than that, it's basically equivalent to error backpropagation. Well, so there's a lot of things to cover. So you just summarized uh, your solution to backpropagation in the brain. Um, yeah. And I wanna come back to why learning is necessary. So in your cup example, when you show me the cup and maybe you put a pin in front of it, right? Why does my, I know what a cup is and I see the cup and even though the pin is in front of it, uh, I, my brain registers cup at, you know, over 150 milliseconds or something like that. But why do my synapses need to change? Or are you, you said that you're interested in how the brain wires itself up. Are you more interested in the, in the developmental aspect as, as I'm a child and learning about the world? Or is it also within adults who know what cups are and you look at a cup and then your brain still tags all of the synapses for learning, even though it's just confirmation, yes, that's a cup. Is there learning going on in that scenario? Probably not. So if your brain is mature and you know what a cup is, then there is no reward prediction error anymore. Even though all those synapses are labeled, there's so no reason because yeah. there are nothing unexpected about the cup in your behavior. There, there are other scenarios. There are two other interesting scenarios in this context. One is a, a young brain that needs to learn about cups. Then it's pretty relevant, right? Yeah. And then, then these, these, <laughs> these mechanisms might be at work. Another scenario is 
there are two more scenarios actually. One scenario is uh, if that's if there's something like a cup that is just a little bit different from the cup you're expected expecting. So maybe it's a special cup and you need you need to really learn about it because it's different and it's very right. relevant for your behavior. That could happen. And another situation is it's not the learning about a cup anymore, but it's learning about the behavior that should be associated with the cup. So maybe in some cases, all the official categories have been worked out. You know what it is, what you're looking at, but you still need to use it in a strategic way in your behavioral program. And then the learning is probably not taking place in the visual cortex, but it could be taking place right. in, in other places of the brain. But the learning principles, error backpropagation, or its biological equivalent might still be the same. All right, so let's talk about backpropagation. Um, there's this <laughs> recent flood, I would say, uh, of people trying to figure out how backpropagation works in the brain. And you've been actually working on this uh, for years. I'm kind of wondering if I'm right in thinking that there's a recent surge. I mean, it uh, seems apparent to me, but also just your thoughts on this recent surge, because you've been working on it for years, before we get into the mechanics of it all, do you see this as a, a massive flood right now in trying to figure out how, quote unquote, backpropagation works in the brain? Yeah. And it's really interesting to see this. So it's, of course, inspired by the huge success that machine learning now has in, right. in doing all kinds of tasks, computer games. Uh, language translation and so on and so forth. So people are taking it much more seriously than say 20 years ago. And it's really nice to see that, that now many people are thinking about deep learning and how we can use it to get more insight into learning in the brain. And it's true, we, we already worked on this uh, in 2005 and we published our first paper about it. Was that the Agrel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we now refined it. Uh, we now have a new version we call BrainProp. <laughs> so it's just oh, a, I thought it was QAgrel is the latest thing that yeah, I yeah we had we have several versions so even newer uh, okay just, yeah but I mean the basic rule is still the same you use the feedback connections from higher levels the motor program that gets selected to lower levels to highlight those synapses that are going to be held responsible. But we now worked it out also how to do it efficiently for multiple layers for a network with more than three layers. So right. it can be as deep as you want. And it's it's still basically, as I said, you, you we, get, we completely got rid of the teacher. So many of the new developments, they're still using a teacher and they're giving nice, nice insights. So there's something called equilibrium prop and some other variants of it. I think it's very interesting, but they're still using a teacher. There's always the question, how exactly would that happen in the brain? What's the teacher in the brain, right? And, exactly. and so you guys uh, get around that. There's no teacher. There's no, There's teacher. no teacher. So we, we really have to take that constraint also more seriously. And I think then what we have is probably the best game in town. So Okay, great. Well, <laughs> I like your... Uh, I, I mean, I agree with you, actually. What are other people that are working on backpropagation in brains, everyone's got their own solution. There's equilibrium uh, propagation, there's feedback alignment, there's, you know, you name it. What's your take on how people perceive your solution? So I, I've been in, in contact with a number of, of influential people in this, in this, uh, in this work, uh, like uh, 
we had a conference uh, on Barbados on this, and we actually wrote a report about it that was published in uh, Nature Neuroscience. Yeah, I think it's pretty well known. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so I think people like the idea, and actually, I think it's it's gradually you need to understand it maybe, and and of course. The people in machine learning, they, they come sometimes from a different angle and you have to align the, uh, the, the terms that you use. But I think it's right. people are starting to take it more seriously now. Well, I want to ask about the different angles, the different perspectives from machine learning and from neuroscience. Because it, it struck me that most backpropagation approximations, solutions for brains, have tended to come from the machine learning side and, and to have that perspective and start with the back with classic backpropagation mechanism and then figure out maybe how a brain might implement it. And it seems like you consider, you come from the brain's perspective, you consider what we know about brains and then figure out, well, how could something like backpropagation occur? Uh, would, would you agree with, is there a difference in perspective? Because I think that yeah. it leads to different solutions. And, and uh, so one, one important thing is, of course, I've, I've been working in attention and have been thinking about right. the role of feedback, right. say, in, in object-based attention. We talked about it in the beginning. And um, something that is evident also to psychologists is that if there are several things and, and uh, several actions that you can take, you take one action towards a particular object, that object will have attention. There are very important uh, papers on that, for instance, from Heiner Doibel, uh, Aileen Kowler, and others. That demonstrate that if you direct your eyes or, or, or make a grasping movement towards a particular object, that's the one that, that, that will be in your attention. We also know that in the visual cortex, this is, these, these features that belong to those objects, they will be labeled by extra activity, right? That's, there is basically feedback to those neurons. Now, we also know that attention-gauge learning, so actually we carried out a study a few years ago in which there was the same information on the left and the right. It's called redundant cues. So you mm -hmm. could basically learn the task based on the information on the left. You could also learn the task based on the information on the right. There was equivalent. But we cued the subjects to pay attention to only one of those sites. They only learn about the one they pay attention to, even mm -hmm. though the reward continuities, everything is the same. I think that's an indirect also evidence that you have to take attention, the role of attention seriously if you think about backpropagation in the brain. And so all these things align, you know. So it's, I think it's very strong evidence that these feedback connections are doing the, the gate to learning. And uh, so I, th I consider it very strong evidence actually for this, uh, this brain prop or, or agri learning rule that we've been proposing. Well, I, you already described it once, but let's do it again just to be uh, clear <laughs> before we move on how uh, how your solution works. So maybe you can can you just describe it again, and then and then we can move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's about linking sensory codes to motor actions, right? And there can be many layers in between. Now, in the in the beginning, when when these layers are untrained on the motor side of things. You could choose, say, one out of 1,000 actions, uh, a certain limited number of actions. If you then choose an action, those neurons that code for that action, they're going to provide feedback to those neurons in the sensory cortex and all the intermediate stages that kind of gave input to this action. 
and that they are therefore are going to be held responsible for the outcome of the action. The, the winner of the uh, voting process to take the action then is activated, and that activation then feeds back. That activation feeds back all this, to all the synapses that gave input. Okay? Now, if it's better than expected, there will be a release of neuromodulators like dopamine, but that's relatively global. Mm -hmm. So it floods the brain with dopamine, but only those, those synapses that were involved in the sensory, uh, sensory motor mapping, so that it received a feedback signal, they are going to increase in strength. And all the other synapses that are completely independent, not responsible for this particular action, they're not going to change the synapse, although they, seem this, they see the same level of dopamine. Turns out now, so we're looking at the pre and the postsynaptic activity. We're looking at whether this postsynaptic neuron receives feedback from the response selection stage. That's a third factor. A fourth factor is the level of neuromodulator. Yeah. So all these, all these signals are present at the individual synapse. Right? And then it turns out that if you kind of put them together, you get something that is equivalent to airbag propagation. But you don't need the teacher anymore because you're in a reinforcement learning scheme. Most of the time, um, it seems when people are describing how learning might work in the brain, they say either it's neuromodulators, either it's like a reward prediction error, some sort of perturbation on the synapses, or there must be very specific uh, back propagation happening. It seems obvious to me that everything, what we know about the brain is that everything is going on. You're getting the reward prediction error. You're getting the neuromodulators. You're also having this top-down uh, feedback. And so, I don't know, it just seems like a very natural solution to me. So we agree. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the issues, I mean, there, you know, there's lots of work still to be done on this stuff, but one of the issues is the effects of time because the way that your um, networks work, there's still a feed-forward sweep. And that's like step one. And then, so there are like multiple steps and then there's a feedback sweep. I'm wondering if, if this is something where, so, so in your network at the end stage, there's an action, the unit gets activated and you choose the action and then there's the feedback signal, but you have to take in, eventually we'll have to take into account time, right? I'm wondering if confidence might come into play as a, an additional factor that sort of happens over time because still in the network, there's a decision, but it's a discrete event. Whereas maybe confidence could be a, a lingering activity that's still propagating through the network in how you think you might have done uh, labeling that cup or zebra uh, versus how it actually turns out because you you everything is running continuously and dynamically so you you have to have this continuous sort of signal because it's not they're not discrete events and I don't know I'm just wondering what you <laughs> what you might think about some sort of signal that continues on because you have to hang on to the decision to then know whether the you know it was right or wrong to get the reward, reward prediction error to update the synapses. So there are several aspects that you bring up that all need to be addressed. So the first <laughs> is about the, the timing question, right? So one of the questions that you could have is that uh, by the time the feed for propagation is done, the action gets selected and then you need to still have to process the feedback, there are some delays, right? Are they detrimental? So we actually, with David Sambrano we did, and Sandra Botte, we did a study on that. And it turns out that within kind of physiologically plausible measures of these propagation times, that's not an issue. So that's that's part of my, my answer. The other thing is also important to realize that during the, the first feed forward, sweep and then the feedback that that all goes relatively fast maybe yeah. within 100 to 150 milliseconds maybe a little bit longer 
then the synapses get labeled, and but maybe the stimulus is gone by the time you get uh, uh, kind of the reward or no reward. The good news is that by that time, you don't need the activity patterns to be there anymore. And there actually, there are some indications that by that time, these, uh, these coincidences that synapse was involved in a particular action is, is locally stored at the synapse, maybe by some biochemical markers. Uh, so there are, there are some candidate mechanisms for that. So mm -hmm. the activity pattern of the network by that time can be different, but there are still these but now biochemical traces that these synapses are going to be held responsible. But it's not necessary for the pre- and the post-synaptic neuron to be still spiking. Okay, so that's the second maybe partially answer to your question. And then you, you talked about confidence. And confidence and reinforcement learning have something to do with each, with each other. So if, if you do something that you have done all the time and you know what to do, so you're highly confident, and you take an action, then you kind of have a good expectation of what's going to come out. Um, and in that case, uh, even before you, you execute the action, you have a very good prediction of the amount of reward or the consequences. So in those situations, there's basically hardly any reward prediction error left. If you're not confident, for instance, you're early in the learning phase and you're still trying out, you don't know what, what you should do, then you're not so confident. And in those situations, you get a reward prediction error. So then the whole learning machinery can, can take its effect. Yeah. How do you see your backpropagation alternative solution? Um, how does it fit compared to the many solutions that are out there right now? So I think ours is the way the brain does it. And we have, we see, so I'm pretty confident about that. So <laughs> I think uh, the ones like equilibrium, equilibrium propagation, for example, they still need a teacher and it doesn't work as well as ours. So they should just kind of, yeah, take more of the neurophysiology into account, realizing that these feedback connections are important for selection and also maybe for the taking of synapses. Well, it does align well with the multi-compartment unit type uh, models that are people like Tim Lillycrap and Blake Richards are working on, where you you know there's a, an apical dendrite that's sort of isolated from the soma of the cell that gets the feedback, and then depending on how, depending on the incoming activity to it, uh, then it can you know update the synaptic weights at the soma depending on whether it's bursting and et cetera et cetera, and and that aligns pretty well with with your work. Yes. So I think that that part, we, we basically have a similar view. And that is basically a story about how feedback connections work. Right. So feedback connections go to different layers than feedback connections, and they are modulatory rather than driving. And so that's a story about how feedback connections work. So I think the different theories have the same thrust. Um, I think our contribution is that it's related to what psychologists call attention. It's related to kind of the selection through feedback um, and the realization that you don't need a teacher. You can just solve it in a reinforcement learning context. I feel like uh, whatever, you know, 10 years from now or whenever we, whenever the story ends about how something like backpropagation happens in the brain. Uh, and, and I'm being sort of pessimistic. I feel like the uh, the AI folks, the people on the machine learning side, when that happens, will eventually, whatever the solution is, they'll say, see, it's like backpropagation. 
when in reality or when what I conjecture will happen is that neuroscience will figure out the solution. I mean, I know that there's a lot of crosstalk and machine learning has been very influential and, and helpful, but there will eventually be a solution to the credit assignment problem in the brain. And it will be so pretty far removed from what actual, what literal backpropagation is. And so they'll, we will arrive at a solution and it will look like a solution that neuroscientists probably have been working on for a long time. And yet I still feel like the AI side will say, see, it's like backprop. <laughs> what, I don't know. Where, where do you come down on that? <clears throat> I think it's actually, I'm not so pessimistic. So I think it's pretty exciting, actually, that uh, we, we take the AI folks seriously. So we use their models to understand the brain codes. Yeah. And I, I have the feeling that they take us seriously as well, right? So they, they really would like to know how a neuron can do that. They have all kinds of interesting ideas of um, how you can use uh, these, these neural mechanisms. And so this is a very exciting time where people from AI and people from neuroscience really yeah. talk to each other. And yeah. I think we need this. We need their insights because... The brain is such a distributed system that it's very hard to to make sense how it all fits together without these kind of guiding theories. Yeah. I, I think I'm not concerned with it. I think I'm observing what I take to be the hubris of uh, the machine learning side that, you know, so so when backpropagation uh, became big uh, in, in the 80s, and then there's this backlash, well, it's not biologically plausible. And then since then, you know, even in your latest paper, the, the term biologically plausible is in uh, the title uh, in one of your, you know, recent papers. I just think eventually the, the, the answer to the backpropagation approximation in brains is going to be so different than what backpropagation actually is that it won't be fair to say that it, it's backpropagation-like even. Maybe I'm just concerned with the credit uh, that's given to finding the solution of how brains learn, Right. So I, I think the machine learning community is going to take credit for it. And I don't want them to. I'm a neuroscientist, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't care you, because we're, we're, we're all in it together, right? We're all trying to figure out how everything works. But uh, it's just, to yeah. me, it's in interesting socially to, to think about how it's going to play out in that respect. The, the, the history, how the history is going to be written. Yeah, I think there are similar stories for backpropagation itself, right? It also has multiple fathers and people debate on who was the original inventor of it. And uh, so thinking deeply about how this works in the brain, for me, it's just interesting scientific question. So I rather focus on that. What do you think? So I've had a few people on the podcast who have taken umbrage with the phrase biologically uh, plausible. Uh, they don't like that term because we don't actually... The argument is that we don't actually know what's biologically plausible. And when people use that phrase, it's fairly meaningless, but people use the phrase to promote their their work as being more important. And you you use the phrase, and I think I'm I'm sure I've used it multiple times. I don't do you have a, a thought on that? Oh, now I'm may reconsider using this phrase. <laughs> I never thought about it this way. I hadn't either, yeah. So in this specific case. There, I think it's a, a really important question to ask how the brain with its many layers between input and outputs can train itself. Also, I mean, people realized, I realized many years ago that it's not going to be backpropagation because we 
it's not a teacher who's going to tell the neuron in the motor cortex who should be active and who not. And there are many areas in backpropagation where the feedback is basically, according to backpropagation, would have to propagate error signals. And we know in areas, these error signals do not exist. Now, right. the good news is that we do know what is being propagated is attentional signals. And therefore, the insight that we had is that if you combine this local attentional signal, that's a local signal, uh, with this global signal that tells all the neurons in the brain whether it's better or worse than expected, turns out that you have you can basically partition the backpropagation equation in this attention part mm. and in this neuro neuromodulatory part, and then you can have at the individual synapses all the all the information that you need for the synaptic, synaptic update. I think that's the insight. Mm. I don't have a problem with the term biologically plausible, but I wonder if the term not biologically implausible would be more satisfying to people who don't like the term biologically pl plausible because backpropagation is biologically implausible. It, I mean, there's, exactly. it just doesn't exist. And it's so strange when people insist on saying it could exist because no, it actually can't exist when you look at brains and how they work. Yeah. Maybe maybe not biologically implausible is the uh, the way to go. <laughs> I mean, what 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 for me is important is that people get this insight. So you right. need a certain number of error terms or, or pieces of information at the synapse pre and post synaptic activity. That's that's easy, right? That's what the synapse does. But our backpropagation says you need something more, and it, and the nice thing is that you can partition this into an attentional signal that is locally specific. It doesn't tell whether it's better or worse than expected. It's just kind of, hey, this synapse is was involved in this particular action. And then there's a global signal that is agnostic about, about specific synapses. It just tells all the synapses in the brain is better or worse than expected. Turns out then you have everything in the synapses that you need to do something that is equivalent to backpropagation. I think the, the tricky part in the details is the wiring and that you still need, so you don't have symmetric feedback signals. It doesn't go reverse direction, you know, down the synapses and then feedback, but you still need a, fee a feedback uh, network that, um, you know, from the output, you still need the network to feedback onto all of the synapses that were responsible for that output. So I think that's a complicated structural problem, but there's a lot of connections in the brain. So that's solvable. Yes. And we know it's, it has been solved by the brain. <clears throat> so there are two aspects to this. The first is you can set this up. You don't need to set this up at the level of the individual neuron, this reciprocity of connections. But if you do it at the level of a cortical column, it's pretty plausible. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, there's good evidence actually that, that columns of neurons that feed to other columns of neurons in one direction typically also get a feedback in the other direction. Okay, so that's kind of theoretical hand-waving. Now, what about what we measure in the brain? So we just see those signals, right? So imagine doing a curve tracing task where all kinds of lines are, are interconnected and, and the monkey has to mentally trace one curve over another curve. It turns out that we find those feedback signals precisely at all those image elements that belong to the object that is being selected by the animal. Same is true for visual search. So if you're looking for 
something yellow, then even at the level of V1, neurons that respond to the color yellow, they will enhance their response. Mm -hmm. So the feedback does have this. It has exactly those properties that you need. So we know from the neurophysiological point of view that this is what is going on in the brain. And we know through theoretical, or what I call theoretical hand-waving, that you can make this work at least at the level of the column. So I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that this is the way it works. In your earlier work, uh, you, you used a, you know, like a three-layer network with you know, basically one hidden unit layer, and you were uh, performing tasks that monkeys perform that we use in neuroscience, right? And this more recent work, you've now stepped up the number of layers and you've shown mathematically that you can do it in very deep networks. And you've also started using the benchmark tasks that are famous in machine learning and shown that, yes, like you said earlier, um, it, it's the price you pay is that the learning is a little bit slower, but then you get you still get very good performance and, and learning uh, eventually. So now what? What's next? So there, there has been some beautiful work demonstrating that these, these networks, for instance, can do computer games, uh -huh. right? So that would be interesting to have a, a rich input because in the, in the work with three layers, we basically pre-digested the inputs and made it very easy for the network to know what the input patterns are that it should care about. So I think that would be an interesting direction for us. Something else that I'm interested in is uh, I think uh, Botswinik had a really nice paper about it. It's called Learning to Learn. Meta-learning. And yeah. it's, it's one of the ideas is that if you start to write information in working memory, you can rapidly switch between tasks. And, uh, and that's very different from, say, reversal learning, in which you learn a read to kind mm -hmm. of have a certain stimulus that maps into response A and another stimulus that maps into response B that requires the rat to learn over hundreds of trials, and then you reverse contingencies, and then the rat has to relearn, rewire the system, and so on and so forth. But at some point, the rat realizes, hey, there are two contexts. I'm in context one, and then this stimulus maps onto A, and I'm, that's called learning to learn, right? So you replace the necessity to re rewire the whole system by a simple context node, which is probably something in working memory. And I think that's really interesting. So, I mean, something that I didn't dare to, to dream about modeling, but I'm now thinking, starting to think about it is if you, if you tell somebody, you know, I'm going to put you in front of a monitor and, and this is going to happen, a subject can just do it, right? So it can understand the instructions. It's probably going to be a pattern in, of activity in a working memory that, enables the flexible links between sensory and inputs, sensory inputs and motor responses that are required later. I think that's, that's very related to learning to learn. So I think that's also a really exciting direction to think in. It is. Is this, is this the most exciting time to be figuring out how brains work? Is this the best time? Is this the best <laughs> age ever to be in? I think so. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I wonder if, if it's, if we're going to look silly in a hundred years, looking back, if, because we, we really think we're figuring it out, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, to some extent, yes. Well, sure. The humility of a neuroscientist. I love it. Well, Peter, let, let's talk about your first, one of your first loves here in consciousness, because you've done some experiments recently that I suppose support the global uh, neuronal workspace hypothesis of consciousness. I don't know if you want to, I don't even know if we've described it on the show before, 
Maybe you could just summarize what the global neuronal workspace hypothesis is. And, and then I'm wondering, are you fully on board with this as the, uh, the correct accounting of consciousness? So, yeah. Put, uh, put you on the spot. <laughs> let, me, let me try to introduce the idea. And it's not unrelated to recurrent processing. So, right. I mean, I, th I think every neuroscientist realizes that there are many processes in the brain distributed across many cortical areas. And that for coherent behavior to come out, you need to connect the nodes, right? Something needs to happen so that motor cortex and visual cortex start to talk to each other to, to get uh, a meaningful behavior. Then there was, uh, I think, Stan de Haan, uh, he's basically the, the, the godfather of, of global neural workspace theory, although there are also uh, earlier uh, versions of it, for instance, like by Bernard Bars. Bars, yeah. And, and he doesn't get mentioned as much these days. It's always de Haan. Of course, yeah. the, this, this, the, these, idea, these good ideas always have a whole history. Sure. And um, um, <clears throat> what Stan suggested also is that uh, there are all these, these processors, and he had this extra idea that there is something that he calls ignition. Ignition, yeah. And, and ignition basically means that uh, a weak sensory stimulus, if it reaches a certain threshold, then it becomes reportable, visible. Uh, and these are actually later turned out to be two related, but maybe different things. So visible means basically what people later called phenomenal consciousness. Mm -hmm. And reportable means what people later called access consciousness. And <clears throat> there are big debates about still the use of these terms and which brain structures are responsible for the two types of consciousness to the degree that they might be separable. When you say ignition, what it's igniting is a well, global, it's in the name of the phenomenon, but it is a sort of a massive recurrent processing that covers lots of different areas of the brain. So it, it ignites into this, what's called the global workspace. And then there's just enough processing that you're conscious. Is that how it works? Yeah. So I, I just started to scratch the surface. So of course, the, the ideas behind it are, are much deeper. So there, I would like to describe two situations. Mm -hmm. And I like the curve tracing task because I worked on it, but you could also take a different task. So in the curve tracing task, uh, you have a, one curve that you mentally trace. Maybe there are some distractors that you're not interested in. You want to know what is on the end of this curve that starts here. So as long as the stimulus is on the screen, you will find that in the beginning, the whole, the whole display gets registered. So all the curves on the screen get registered. That's the feed forward sweep. It goes all the way even to, to frontal cortex. If, if it's a strong stimulus, all these stimuli are also, there are frontal neurons that code for these different uh, visual aspects. Now, if you're interested in only one of those curves, for instance, because it's the one that's connected to the fixation point, that curve is going to be over represented and the other curves are going to be suppressed. So that's what psychologists call attention. And for me, that has a close resem resemblance to what is then in your consciousness. And it has that has also many relations to recurrent processing. There's now a link between the frontal cortex that over-represents this curve and that feeds also back to lower levels, even to the level of V1, where all these contour elements that belong to that curve are also presented in an amplified fashion, okay? So 
for me, that is recurrent processing, and this is related to the global neural workspace theory that posits that there are processors for different features in, in this particular case, maybe the local features, the local line elements in V1, the overall shape of the curve, maybe an IT cortex, uh, maybe your plan to make an eye movement to the end of this curve in frontal cortex and other aspects in frontal cortex. All these processors are active and they have recurrent links. Okay, so that's my rendering of global neural workspace <laughs> theory in the presence of a curve. Okay. Okay. Now suppose I present only these curves very briefly and they're gone. Then you can still process them to some degree, although at some point you will find out that your processing is more limited than if these things are still visible. And in those situations, there are still processors that can be active and they can represent features of a curve no longer visible and then it's working memory. It turns out that many of these neurons that are active in the first case are also active in the second case, although there are also huge differences. For instance, in V1, you only find a very weak trace of the stimulus that was still there. There are still mm -hmm. some working memory signals even in V1, but it's not so pronounced. Now, in those situations, the processors that are kind of contributing to the conscious process, they kind of relate strongly to what psychologists call working memory. And in the brain, it's persistent activity. These neurons are persistently active. Um, and now about ignition. So ignition, uh, I think, are all these, all these processors that are part of this distributed representation of the thing that is in your consciousness. And ignition becomes really important in the cases in which the stimulus is only briefly visible or perhaps only, only weakly presented. So then you can get a bifurcation in which, say, a very weak stimulus, that's, that's what we used in, in a paper not so long ago, in which we presented stimuli that were close to the thresholds of perception. Very quickly flashed on the screen, right? Yes, and, and, and also weak. Yep. So then the same stimulus, sometimes you'll see it and sometimes you don't. And that's interesting, right? Because then you have the same stimulus that gives rise sometimes to a conscious percept of the stimulus and sometimes you fail to see it. So therefore, that's just a, a nice experimental paradigm. And what we then found is that the ones that kind of make it into consciousness are, are going to be reportable. These are the ones that kind of are then amplified and, and also visible at the level of the frontal cortex as a persistent firing rate. So they basically made it into working memory. And those that uh, kind of were not going to be reported, in this case by a monkey, they kind of gave rise to a weaker propagation from V1 to frontal cortex, basically unable to reach this stage of ignition, and they basically failed to make it in working memory. So that's where the ignition idea comes into play, as if there's sort of a threshold. If you cross that threshold, you get sort of an amplification, and you get a stable representation in working memory. If you fail to reach that threshold, the information is lost. So that's basically the relationship between global neural workspace theory uh, visible and and only tempor temporarily presented stimuli, and also I talked a little bit about how we approach these questions. And and you you found some evidence uh, that favors this theory. <clears throat> yeah, that's so. That's basically the experiment I kind of indirectly described, in which we presented weak stimuli, and what we found basically is the stimuli, if they're going to be reported, they 
they're propagated. There's some stochasticity in the propagation from V1 to V2, to V4, and so on and so forth. And there was also a prediction of, of, uh, of Stan de Hane in his, in his renderings of, uh, of his version of the global neural workspace theory. And we basically validated that prediction. That's precisely what came out in our experiment. So that was kind of exciting. Yeah, I love in your talks uh, how exasperated you seem uh, that he just made a really quick model in in an afternoon. You say, whereas yeah. it took it took you a little bit more than an afternoon to perform the experiments and gather the data and anal analysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. serious <laughs> modeling envy. I I've had that as well. So 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 then the second part of my question: Are you fully on board with? the global neuronal workspace hypothesis as an accounting of consciousness. And I, you know, I'm putting you on the spot here because, because I can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I like the idea. I, I always like the idea and it, I like the relation between, but I, I, I like also, and maybe there, there are some extra thoughts that, that I put in because with Victor Lama, we also kind of theorized about this. And so I, I strongly like the idea that this processor, say, in frontal cortex that sustains the activity and it selects also has its uh, connections to processors in, at earlier levels, even up to the level V1. And that is related to this idea of object-based attention. So all those features through the feedback that are unlabeled by enhanced firing rate that whole, that whole, all those features are part of your conscious experience, even at the level of V1, and that is related need to binding. So this this incremental grouping process that I was talking about. So and that could be an explanation why the why the objects that we have in our conscious perception are rich and multi-featured. Um, so I see a strong connection there between incremental grouping and the content of consciousness. When the stimulus is there, yeah. And the other thing that that I've been proposing is that there's a very nice link <clears throat> between what is in our working memory and what is in our conscious perception. In the case the stimulus is no longer there. So is it more? And I apologize because I I haven't read up on uh, global neuronal workspace theory in a long time. Uh, I've only just you know reading your work, uh, refamiliarized myself with you know it's in very summarily though. But is it more of a an account of the, let's say, the neural correlates of consciousness, or does it have a an explanatory mechanistic account of qualia, let's say, of phenomenal consciousness, of you know how you get from from that activity, from the ignition and then the global activity? Is there an explanatory account to go from that to our phenomenal awareness? And that's a hard question. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> and I'm not sure I'm going to convince everybody in in this field with my because it's it's a it's it's a very difficult field with very different theories. But I mean, it's intuitively very comfortable. Yes, but the, the thing that that I just said goes a little bit in this direction, and that is <clears throat> that if if i say that this recurrent processing that in the frontal cortex gives rise to sustained activity but in also in the visual cortex gives rich uh, rise to a very rich representation that is labeled basically for attention and, and in in my view then that corresponds corresponds quite closely to what is in your phenomenal 
phenomenal awareness that has explanatory power. But why do we need to be aware of that? However rich of a percept it is, why why do we need to experience it? I suppose is I mean this is you know the age old question, right? Yes. So an indirect answer could be. So there, there are special types of activity that reflect the fact that, say, a neuron in, in visual cortex has a special connection to a neuron in frontal cortex. Yeah. And so that is this, basically this idea of a, a global state. And if that, if that has a very special state, what's done called broadcasting, yeah. then, then that is also maybe substance for other thoughts when we think about ourselves. Um, and that might go in the direction of explaining why then uh, this also has this special introspective qualium of, hey, this is on my mind. The qualium, the singular, I like it. <laughs> How far away are we, do you think, from having a satisfying account of consciousness, all, you know, subjective phenomenal awareness, insert whatever you qualia for instance how far away do you think we are from agreeing in a as a scientific community about the the neural underpinnings if indeed it, there are neural underpinnings i guess i have to mm -hmm. qualify that yeah that depends on how much you would like to understand of it because consciousness awareness has many many layers right yeah. some layers i think we're scratching so I just gave you an example of a very simple version of a very weak stimulus that can make it or make it not into awareness. I think we have mechanistic understanding of that now. The next level is uh, self-awareness or, or social awareness. I think so there are so many layers of what we call awareness and we are far removed from deeper understanding of those. Do you think that we have a good grasp on even what it is <laughs> there's no it so if you look at it it is becomes multifaceted and some of some parts we start to understand and some parts i mean i guess one of the basic questions is why am i now here in this body and why is it me what is what is i and what is the substrate of this experience that i have these very direct questions that you can only ask yourself and I think we're very far from answering those. Yeah, I just spoke with uh, Dale Lee, and he he believes that uh, subjectivity, because it's subjective, because of our because our phenomenal consciousness is subjective, that uh, it is not available for scientific inquiry. Essentially, now, that's a frustrating thing. But do you think we're on the right track in characterizing? I'm going to say it again. I, I mean. You know, when you say it, it, it's almost like it's an object, but uh, you can also think of consciousness as a process and that there's no it there because it is a process. <laughs> you know, it's, it's frustrating because it's difficult to even talk about what we want to talk about because maybe we haven't characterized it <laughs> well enough yet. Yeah, so so again, there are, there are many layers. Some of them we understand, right? We also understand things about the difference between, between somebody who's in coma and yeah. who hardly has any consciousness and, and somebody who at least can make all the connections between well, all the notes in the brain that are necessary for a thought or for an action. 
Um, but yeah, as I said, there are more difficult layers uh, and that is also the concept of the self and, uh, and then indeed questions that are very deep, like why am I now here and experiencing this and am I the same person as I was oh, with the same yes. consciousness as say yes. two years ago? Or two milliseconds ago. Exactly. Given that, so so the global neural workspace, it lays out sort of what you need. You need the ignition, you need the broadcasting, and you need this highly recurrent processing. That all seems pretty doable in a machine. Uh, do you think that we're going to do it in a machine? How far away do you think we are from, let's say, the most elementary conscious processing in, you know, I don't, I don't want to say deep networks, but we'll just say machines? <clears throat> yeah, so uh, I think you could, probably make machines that have some of these very rudimentary forms of consciousness. Uh, like if there is a weak stimulus, it can go into one of two states, one in which it just perceives it and is able to report about it and one in which it did perceive it just because of the stochasticity of the sensors of this, say, robot. Um, so, but are we going to face ethical problems when we unplug the system? Maybe not yet. <laughs> so but I don't know where the boundary is going to be. So I, I do think that we are heading in, in that direction for sure. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. Uh, so for instance, if you are going to build very sophisticated robots that, that have uh, some of this, where we implement some of this neuroscience knowledge that we have and that will allow these robots to have a rich interaction with the environment, to have representations of others, humans, robots, uh, and also kind of a conception of itself and its role in the world. It's interesting, <laughs> at some point, these robots might be claiming their rights. <laughs> and what are we going to do? Unplug, turn the power, turn the power off. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. So, uh, Peter, we have a, you know, a few more minutes left here, and I want to uh, move on and talk about, you know, speaking of using machine so so we can use machines uh to aid in our consciousness and i want to talk about your work in prosthetic vision so you have these grand plans and you're implementing uh this idea of being able to stimulate people's v1 really early visual cortex to give them visual perception uh, and this would be the the idea for people who who wouldn't uh, be able to take a retinal implant because some there's some damage or some degradation of their processing from their retina to their V1. So your idea is to go in and directly stimulate uh, V1 and give people visual perception. How's it going? How's the project going? First of all, maybe you could describe the project a little bit better than I just did. And then I want to know how it's going. So it's, 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 it's an old idea. It started with the work of uh, Giles Brindley, and uh, Dobell worked on it. Um, there are now multiple people on the work who on the world who do related projects. I think we we made a big step recently. Uh, what we did is we implanted one thousand electrodes. So it's this this Utah probe that is made by the company BlackRock. It's a small chip, and the version that we implanted in monkeys has a, a total of sixty four electrodes. Mm -hmm. We implanted a whole bunch. We implanted a total of 16 of those. So that's so, so many. Yeah, so that adds to more than 1,000 electrodes. How long was that surgery? It took about eight hours. Yeah, okay. Well, that's not bad. 
Yeah, I mean, we have done this before, so we yeah. we're getting better at it. And um, the nice thing is we had we had about eight hundred electrodes in V one, also a couple in V four, and uh, that the the V one is a map of visual space, right? So if you stimulate it, this location in V one, a human will see a dot of light here. Stimulate a neighbor, he will see a dot of light here. If you see then stimulate his neighbor, a dot of light there. So it's basically a map of visual space. And if you then plug in a couple of hundred electrodes, that gives you the opportunity to give uh, what people call a phosphine. So if you stimulate one of these electrodes, a human, or even a blind person will see a spot of light. Um, if you have a couple of hundreds, you can make spots of lights at several hundred locations in the visual field. And you can work with it basically like a matrix board along the highway, right? If you flash one bulb, you will see a dot. But if you flash a pattern of bulbs, you will see a shape or a letter. So we trained monkeys to recognize letters so they were not blind. They could just do the task visually on the screen. But at some point, we didn't present anything on the screen anymore. We just played it to their brain. And it worked. So they can see it. They can recognize letters. So I think that is proof of concept. So this this will work in monkeys. It will it will work in humans. So for me, the next step is well, to better understand, of course, how this electrical stimulation works, because there are still some things that we need to know better. Yeah. But also to develop safe uh, implants uh, that that with the Utah probe, we know that it works for a year it works well, and then it starts to degrade a little bit. So there's some damage because this is a stiff silicon thing in the brain and uh, so we will have to make a version of the electrodes that is durable so if you implant it now it will also work next year and also after five years so that's an important focus of the project and of course you have to make this te technolo technology wireless so we work together with uh, Eduardo Fernandez who implanted a blind patient with, a, with such an electrode mm. And uh, the current version of the electrodes, the patient still had a plug on the skull, right? So there's an opening in the yeah. skin and then you have the plug. Of course, you would like to get away from that. So that's another thing that needs to be developed. And uh, we're actually, we started a company and looking for investors to make this happen. Oh, what's the company name? I didn't know that. It's called Phosphenix. So oh, one cool. of these yeah. artificial percepts is called a phosphine. Yeah, and phosphenix is kind of it's a phoenix is rising from the ashes, so it's nice. kind of a combination of these two ideas. What is the idea though? The idea is not to restore complete, at least at this stage, is not to restore complete vision, but but to be able to present a a, uh, a pattern of phosphenes that then the patient or uh, person can use to interact with the world. It's it's not necessarily to present a rich and full visual percept to the person, right? Exactly. That's very true. So um, it's going to be a rudimentary form of vision. That's how we call it. Mm. And um, you have an extra opportunity, and that's the following. So the patient, also in, in previous renderings of the device, so there's also the company Second Sight, who made a similar device first for the retina and also later for the cortex, although they use surface electrodes that give rise to much coarser phosphenes. So you, have a, you, have, you, have a, you wear a camera, say, on your glasses, and you have a pocket processor that takes in camera images and produces brain stimulation patterns. Now, in the translation, 
from a camera image into a brain stimulation pattern, you can do tricks, right? You can, for instance, only represent those things that are maximally informative. Mm -hmm. So also in that sense, we are thinking about how to make maximal use of a limited number of phosphenes. And you're right, it's not going to be as rich as as the vision of a normal person. At least at this stage, but it's it's useful and that's what matters. It would be incredibly useful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the things that I found myself wondering about as well <laughs> is, so, you know, our brains are constantly adapting, constantly learning and changing. Uh, and as you start to stimulate early visual cortex, for instance, uh, you know, you have this big massive recurrence that's happening. And I'm wondering if we know or even have a good guess or conjecture about how stimulating something early on in the visual uh, processing stream would interact with you know, top-down, let's say, attention and feedback processing and you know especially with respect to what we would consider higher order mental activity right and if it, it's it's difficult to know i mean is the brain so robust that it really wouldn't have any higher order mental activity effect or you know would this type of stimulation lead to you know down the road you know some sort of I don't know, mental disorder, <laughs> potentially, or something like what, what could the effects be? And I, I don't know if you've thought about that. Yes. So I think the, the good news is that in those, this will only work in, in people who have seen, right? So who have a history of seeing. Yeah, right. So they, they, they basically developed their normal visual pathways and then they lost eyesight in the, typically in the retina, there are many eye diseases where you lose sight in the eye. <clears throat> so there is this whole chunk of cortex that is waiting for input, but it's not coming. And we are just plugging it in in, the, in in V1. So the good news is that also at a later stage, this plasticity is, is, is certainly in early visual cortex is not so enormous anymore. So you're basically plugging into a system that is waiting for inputs, but that's not terribly plastic anymore. So Mm -hmm. I, I'm not particularly concerned about it having uh, um, detrimental mental influences. Yeah. I don't think that will happen. I, I don't think so either, but I just, one never knows. <laughs> and yeah. That's a, but it's maybe less plasticity, but there still is filling in. The cortex wants to be used. It can't help it, right? So it gets used for things and then you're reprogramming it. Uh, it's not like it's sitting there just blank and yeah. then you plug in its former use. We might get some beneficial plasticity. Yes, right. Because the patterns that we're going to be able to transmit to the cortex, they are going to be rudimentary. So maybe uh, the neurons kind of become extra sensitive to small changes in the stimulation pattern that are important for behavior. Like some subtle changes in the visual stimulus are very important and some subtle changes are completely unimportant. And that right. I would suspect that the brain would just use that information as it would use normal visual information. Well, it's going to be fascinating to to learn how people experience it, to hear the, the words that people use to describe what they're experiencing. That'll be fascinating work. So good luck with the company. Uh, yeah, when, thank you. When did, when did you found it? When did it start? <laughs> we started it a year ago. Okay. 
but that was also because uh, we wanted to be a partner in a grant and uh -huh. so but we're still uh, looking for investors so i hope we will be able to scale it up uh, anytime soon are you going to like pitch meetings and things like that startup kind of pitch meetings well we we are talking to investors every now and then yeah, yeah. and cool. then <laughs> it's a different type of presentation you give than for a scientific audience so uh we're just about out of time but do you, do you mind if i ask you just some kind of broad questions in the, in the last moment sure. or two so I'm, I'm wondering if you've had any failures that uh have, have like really stood out you know scientific failures maybe what's one of one of your biggest failures that you've had and how did you move on from it because when people people don't talk about their failures that's not what they well generally bring up uh on stage although you already did mention oh i'm gonna guess what your what your failure is gonna be it's gonna be the <laughs> synchronization story am i right exactly yeah your heart was I, in. I, 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 I really thought I had to quit science, you know, because you I, really did. I wrote papers. Yeah, I, I thought this is a disaster. I, my whole thesis was on the, the importance of, uh, of synchrony and oscillations. And then the first thing I, I, uh, I find, found as a beginning postdoc is that it's just not working like I thought. Yeah. So I thought this is the end of my career. What do you think about? oscillations now i mean because there's still a large um part of the story there's a lot of ideas about how oscillations can even be uh causal for processing right so where where do you land on on the synchronization and oscillation oscillations story right now i think that i make exceptions for very slow oscillations because they i think may signal really meaningful processes the best they are signatures signatures of say feedforward and feedback processes but they're not causal and sometimes i think they're just there to distract the neuroscientists from the truth oh, oh man <laughs> oh boy you're making enemies among the oscillations <laughs> community uh finally peter what you know as people progress in their careers so you start off and you you are discovering personally discovering learning things at a rapid rate and sometimes they're like big things and it feels very satisfying and as you progress through your career that rate of discovery kind of slows down and often you know your first project as a graduate student almost defines your career and then you know you, you build up this body of knowledge and then things start slowing down uh discovery rate wise I'm wondering if that is what you have experienced in your career and how it has sort of affected your outlook, if so. I think in my career was defined by the fact that I started to think about visual processing, binding. And in the beginning, I had many ideas, many of them wrong, and I started to work on them. And over time, my ability to attract good people and work on these ideas has increased. And uh, so that kind of makes the projects that we're doing incredibly satisfying. And with the advent of all kinds of new techniques, so we're also studying some of this recurrent processing now in rodents. Mm. Where you have very powerful techniques uh, uh, where you can use optogenetics to silence neurons. You can use uh, calcium imaging to look at specific types of interneurons. Right. It's It's just... Yeah, equally exciting. Maybe even more exciting than 20 years ago. I was going to, you seem like you're more excited. Yeah. 
<laughs> and then this visual procedure thing, you know. So if you can bring this to humans, it would be so fantastic. Yeah. And can you believe, I mean, then we have an interface to the brain of a human. You can ask all kinds of questions that we couldn't ask without this technology. Do you, do you feel like you're in competition with Neuralink? <laughs> so actually, I talked to Elon Musk. He at some point invited me. I even talked to him at his, uh, at his house. And uh, I think it's not competition. So I think their focus is a bit different. And yeah, sure. I think yeah. we, have, we have the right technologies for the things we want to do. They have other questions, so they need other technologies. I mean, the technologies they use, they most of them are already there, right? So, and yeah. they are kind of distributed around the world. So, we I'm now part of a number of consortia where we also have all these technologies. So, I think we will complement each other, and uh, there will be happy co- coexistence of several companies who kind of reinforce each other. That's great. Well, that's a that's a great place to end it. Peter, thank you so much for talking with me and good luck with everything. It's 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 exciting. You have multiple exciting things going on. So in a sense that my question about, you know, the rate of discovery slowing down was, you know, a terrible question because it doesn't seem to with you. Uh, I'm enjoying myself and thanks for the interview. It was a lot of fun. Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time.